Greetings. Welcome to Wednesday night. Are we all ready to get started? All right, let's let's uh, let's pray. Let's open up with a word of prayer, and then um, uh, we'll jump into the study here. Uh, hang on here. There we go. Father, we bless you. We thank you for this evening to be able to to fellowship together, to enjoy one another, to enjoy you, and to enjoy your word. And we invite you to speak to us, to uh, open up the scriptures in our minds and our hearts that we would receive and and lord that it would be not just knowledge that we would gain for our minds but it would be food for our souls and that it would be meat meat that would be planted deep that would be food for others uh lord that it would go from us to, to others that we would be changed by it so help us lord as we go through these things help me father that i would be faithful to present in a way uh, that rightly divides your word. So we bless you and we thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen? All right. I forgot. Let me, i got to grab my clicker so I can change the slides. Here, I thought I was all set up. There we go. I got to talking too much. I didn't finish doing my job. All right. <clears throat> so we're we're going through this we're going through this book. I dare you not to bore me with the Bible. Is y'all enjoying? It? Anybody have the copy of the book? You got a few of you. Have you had a chance to read through some of it yet? I highly recommend getting it. Um, and of course, it always reinforces it. Uh, we're, go, we're this is our sixth lesson going through it. I'm going to do a little bit different tonight. So it's by let me say this up front because I always like to give full credit uh, to uh, from you know from the scholars and the, those who have gone before us have done all the hard work. So this is a book by Dr. Michael Heiser. Um, he's with the Lord now, uh, just recently passed away, um, uh, young, and amazing scholar, love his work. Um, and he wrote this book because uh, uh, you know, he, was, he was teaching in, in Bible school and seminary, and, you know, it's like he's, he, he, grew up, he did not grow up a Christian. He grew up in a in an unbelieving home. There was no religion whatsoever, and he, he became a believer. And he said he's always been interested in things that are old and weird. He says, and all of a sudden he discovered the Bible. You get both, <laughs> both in one. This is awesome. And uh, and so he just been always been fascinated by it. He was, in fact, when he um, got out of high school, and this, he says this is how much he had no background in, in uh, traditional Christianity at all. He got out of high school and he went to college. And it wasn't until then that he discovered you could actually work as a minister and get paid to study and teach the Bible. He's like, that's a job? <laughs> that's for real? People can do that? And, uh, and then he spent the, the next, I think, like 15 years married and had kids and would go to school and then have to stop for a while, earn some money, pay for it, go to school and just worked to the, all the way to got his PhD, and one of his his passions is getting good scholarship out of the academy to the pulpit to the people, and so uh, that's one of the things I appreciate by him is he helps us really understand this thing we call our Bible, and so um, so you know if it, if it's weird if it's perplexing or boring or strange that's his specialty, and that's what we're going to be going through as we're going through this. We're going to look at some things hopefully in a different way than we've looked at them before, and they help us to really get a hold of our Bibles. All right, so 
the way the book is set up is it has part one and it goes through a bunch of Old Testament passages and has part two and it goes through a bunch of the New Testament passages. And what we've gone through so far together in the Old Testament, we've looked at Old Testament cosmology, which is you know how they saw the, the whole galaxy. We've gone through walking like an Israelite, what it, what it meant that they were people of their times, just like we're people of our times. Um, but how that helps us understand the scripture. I'm not going to go through what we learn when we go through these. I recommend getting the book or go back and listen to the lessons. I'm just kind of giving highlights of things we've looked at. Um, we looked at the Bible, understanding inspiration and what that means and how these things were put together. A lot of times we have the wrong view of that. Ooh, let me turn this off so it doesn't ring on us. We talked about how um, uh, the, the original text sometimes is unclear. And and there's we can get some different interpretations. So we want to make sure if we've got those passages, we use those those passages that are super clear to help understand those. Then we looked at why circumcision. Now it's going to be real important for what we're going to look at tonight to have uh, not be real important. You didn't have to go through that to get this, but it'd be helpful if you were here for that lesson or heard that lesson. What we're going to look at tonight is going to uh, kind of build from that. Um, and, and then in the New Testament, we've looked at, now the book is put together where it goes through all the Old Testament and all the New Testament. I've been doing an Old Testament and a New Testament, an Old Testament and a New Testament, kind of mixing and matching. We looked at Jesus declaring war and, uh, you know, declaring war against the gates of hell and understanding just exactly what that meant. And we looked at guardian angels. And I, I just, that, that verse has always fascinated me in Hebrews. It says, we are to be a hospitable people. Why? Because it's, very, it's possible you can entertain an angel and not know it. It's like, you know, how would you feel if all of a sudden that stranger you didn't give a second to was actually an angel who wanted to sit down and have dinner with you? I was like, ooh. So, yeah. All right. Number three, we looked at um, how the New Testament, you know, a lot of times people say, well, that's a misquote from the Old Testament. And in, 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 in discovering, no, it wasn't a misquote. There's, there's ways in which... They were understanding and using it. Then we looked at the text of Jesus saying, I saw sight and fall like lightning. When does that happen? What's that about? That's kind of an obscure script text. And then finally, we looked at that healing serpent last week. You know, when, when, when Moses held up the bronze serpent and it was healing people, and then Jesus used that as a picture of himself, why, why would he use that? And what did that mean? And we pulled some cool stuff out. Now, tonight... What we're going to do, I'm going to do this a little bit different than I have been. I'm only going to do one of the two. That way, um, it'll be a little bit shorter night, and I'm going to try and make them a little bit shorter. I know people have said they've got kids and they want to get out of here. So we'll just probably just cover one at a time instead of two at a time. Instead of doing 170 slides, I'll only do 100 slides. So there we go. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and we'll switch back and forth between them. So this week, we're going to do a tale of courage we never teach. A tale of courage we never teach. And then next week, we'll get into walking on water and what it really means. So, hey, how you doing? Uh, and, and so we'll be, we'll be talking about that. All right, are we good? We ready to jump into this? So, uh, Old Testament, a tale of courage we never teach. Um, so this text is taken from, uh, from Exodus. This is uh, the, the Moses has... Spent some time. Uh, he, he grew up in Egypt. Um, uh, identified with the Israelites, uh, killed an Egyptian, and then uh, uh, 
ran and had to escape from Pharaoh, and he lived in the wilderness as a shepherd for 40 years. He, he married the, the daughter, one of the daughters of, um, of Jethro, the priest of Midian, and, um, and her name was Zipporah. And so about 40 years into this, he's about 80 years old. He sees this burning bush. God reveals himself, says, hey, I've called you to go free my people from Egypt. And he's like, uh, you got the wrong guy. And God's like, who, me? And, uh, and, and, and so he's getting ready to send him. Finally, he agrees to send him. And so this is some of that conversation the Lord and Moses are having, and they're on their road back. And something really weird and strange happens as they begin their journey. And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to try to figure out what is this weird and strange passage all about as they begin their journey back. So I'm in Exodus chapter 4. If you want to read in your Bibles, you can follow with this. I'm using the ESV, but if you want to look at another, that's fine. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Which is really interesting. There's a lot of interesting texts we're skipping here. You can ask me about them later. We're going to still get to the weird one here. Verse 23. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This whole thing about firstborn going on here. Now, um... And we get to 25. Now it starts to get weird. Okay, so the Lord just said that. And, and, and verse 25 says, Then Zipporah, this is Moses' wife, the daughter of the priest of Midian, took a flint and cut off her son's, her son's foreskin. This is her oldest son, the firstborn Gershom. And touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. Who, that's God. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So, um, oops, I missed a verse in there. Sorry, guys. There's an important verse that did not get put in. Let me look it up super fast. I missed 24. Exodus. This is why it's good to have your Bibles. All right. All right. So let me let me add add this in here. So back in twenty three, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now verse twenty four says, right before this one says, at a lodging place on the way, Yahweh met him and sought to put him to death. So they're at a lodging place. And Moses is on his way back to Egypt. He's at a lodging place. He's got his wife. He's got his son. They're on their way back. And Yahweh meets him and is about to kill him. Before Yahweh kills him, Zipporah quickly takes a flint, cuts off her son's foreskin, touches Moses' feet with it, and says, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone, and it was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. All right, so um, I'm, um, 
I'm quoting from Heiser here. This encounter between Moses and God is arguably one of the strangest, most confusing events, re- events recorded in the Bible. Anybody else think that's weird, strange, and confusing? Hmm. Ooh, you, we've got some people who are already, already there. Awesome. Now, I, you know, when I first heard it, I'm like, what in the world's going on? Why, why is, how did we get from, I'm going to kill your firstborn son to Pharaoh, to God all of a sudden being angry at Moses, to his wife all of a sudden circumcising the son and touching his feet? With the circumcised foreskin. And then calling that a bridegroom of blood. What do all these things mean? Well, guess what? They actually do mean something. And we're going to explore that tonight. See, Moses, again, he's on route to Egypt. He's already gone. He's obeying God. All right? So he's seeming, it seems like he's following God's call. He's going. He, you know, he had that whole conversation with God. He didn't want to go. And he, finally, he's relenting. So he's obeying and going. He's, he's going to deliver the Israelites. And something shocking happens as he's going. At the lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. See, I got the verse up here in this point, you know. I need to copy that slide and put it in the middle. <clears throat> so, 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 you know, she takes the flint, the poor of the wife. She cuts off the foreskin, which means she's literally circumcising him, right? She touches Moses' feet. Surely you're a bridegroom of blood. That's good enough for God to let, leave him alone. And then she says it again, that the reason why she says a bridegroom of blood is the circumcision. So... It is difficult. It's confusing. It brings up a lot of questions. What are some of those questions? Why would God want to kill Moses right after calling him to deliver Israel? Well, I mean, he called him. He agreed. He's willing to go. Why does God want to kill him? Where, where, where's that coming from? Um, what makes Zipporah deal with this threat? Why is she dealing with this threat by immediately circumcising her son and touching the foreskin on Moses' feet? How does circumcising her son help Moses? Um, what does that mean? And why would her actions actually pacify God's wrath? Why, why, would, why would that happen? So these are all the things we're going to look at. All right? Sound interesting? We're going to find out it actually applies to us as well. But don't worry. I'm not asking anybody to get any flint knives. So we're okay. <laughs> we're going to see how it preaches. Let's put it that way. All right? How does this preach? All right. So doing the wrong thing. Moses' negligence. Um, why was Moses negligent? What was the wrong thing? What was going on here? So this is an interesting fact. Um, we read that verse that said she touched Moses' feet. Okay? That's what we read in English. In the Hebrew, all it says is she touched his feet. So the antecedent to his could be Moses, but it could also be Gershom. So it could go either way in the Hebrew, um, it, it's, it's not super clear what the antecedent is um, just looking at the Hebrew by itself. So you've got to look at it uh, contextually. So you've got the possibility it could be Moses. You've got the possibility it could be Gershom. And it makes a difference to how we interpret the text. Now, contextually, lo- the, the, the logical context is this. Is God is, it, it starts off with God being angry with Moses, and somehow this action pacifies God from killing Moses. So the likelihood is that, um, that, that it is referencing Moses' feet, not Gershom. But if that's the case, why is God angry? You know, why is he angry with Moses to begin with? Okay, so if that's the case, that seems logical, that seems contextual. It makes the most sense in passages like this to interpret it that way. But, but why would God be angry? So if we're going to figure this out, there's two facts we've got to think about first. 
So if we look at the text and we consider a couple of facts first, it'll help us get there. What are those? Number one, we need to look at the difference between Egyptian circumcision and the Abrahamic covenantal circumcision. Now, how many were here when we taught through circumcision before? I want to see how many have a background. How many don't, were not part of that lesson? So I'm going to, I'll cover Okay, perfect. Thank you. Um, so one of the things when we went through why circumcision is the, is the Israelites were not the only people group at the time who had circumcision. There were many other nations around who circumcised. Um, that, uh, uh, but they, so what made circumcision? If circumcision was a sign of the covenant, between Abraham and God, why was circumcision the sign if that's used in other places? What makes this unique for Israel if that's used everywhere else? If everywhere else they're circumcising, why, why use it here? And the reason why is it, the, the clue we get from the text is when was I, uh, Abraham given this, this uh, sign of circumcision as the covenant? When was he given? He was given after he had obeyed, after God had, I mean, after he acted in faith, showing uh, by his obedience, showing his faith, after God had promised him a son, after it was impossible for him to physically ever have a son or his wife. After he's too old, she's too old, her, her womb is uh, physically impossible for her to have a child. It's after all that, and God continues to promise that he's going to have an inheritance through a physical son from Sarah that the covenant is given. And so what it does is it becomes the sign that the existence of Israel on earth is miraculous. So every time that child is circumcised and the mother see, is, is, and the father are participating in the circumcision of that child, they're remembering the miracle of their existence. They exist by a miracle of God. And that's why this circumcision is different. And so, um, so we need to understand the difference between Egyptian circumcision, what is that, we're going to talk about it, and this covenantal circumcision that's a sign of the covenant passed down from Abraham. The miracle of the existence of the, of the Israelites, of the Jewish family. The so number two fact we need to look at is the circumstances of Moses' birth and childhood. We need to examine those circumstances a bit. So that's what we're going to do. All right. So Egyptian circumcision. What's going on here? Now, we have a place where this comes up as an issue. And we studied it when we looked at circumcision. We're going to bring it up again, just a little bit of it. And this comes up as an issue in, in the book of Joshua. So in the book of Joshua, Joshua was the guy who took over leadership of Israel after Moses, right? Moses puts his mantle on him, and he's leading the Israelites into the promised land. Um, and, and as he's doing this, this is at, the, at that time, he's, 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 they're headed towards a, a city called Gilgal. This is at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives. Notice the flint knife parallel here. What did Zipporah take? A flint knife. We have a flint knife parallel. Um, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Interesting. Why a second time? So note some of the men in this company uh, of Israelites who are going into the promised land had already been circumcised, but they're getting circumcised again. So some of them are getting circumcised again. 
So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeoth Hahalot. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had, uh, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. So all those who were over 20, 20 or over, when they came out of Egypt, all those have died off. That, that uh, generation, all those who were younger, so there were still plenty of men who were there who came out of Egypt. Okay? Uh, but they would have been younger than 20. Now, anybody know when you circumcise, according to Israel? Eight days, on the eighth day. Yeah, it's on the eighth day. All right, so verse 5. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. So we get, uh, um, we get uh, uh, this is my note kind of going over, kind of bringing all the details together. You got men over 20 died in the wilderness. But some of the men were getting a circumcision, a second circumcision. Some were uh, very possibly getting a first circumcision. Um, the ones that are getting a second circumcision, why? Why circumcise them again? Because the, 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 uh, the inferring from the text that they needed a second circumcision was the fact that they had an Egyptian circumcision, not an Abrahamic circumcision. There's no need to circumcise them if they had an Abrahamic circumcision. They were living in Egypt, grew up in Egypt. They were part of Egyptian culture and had been circumcised in accordance with Egyptian circumcision, which is different than the Abrahamic circumcision. So they needed to be circumcised a second time and uh, according to the Abrahamic circumcision. Now, what is the Abrahamic circumcision? We talked about this. Um, Here it is in Genesis 17. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He was eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So, and this is a quote from Heiser about this. Um, Now, what's interesting is Egypt practiced circumcision. But Egyptian circumcision did not remove the foreskin. Instead, what it did is it split the foreskin. It was different. It wasn't the same as the, uh, um, as the uh, Abrahamic covenant. Any Israelite born in Egypt who was circumcised in this way would not have been in accordance with God's covenant. Uh, since Joshua 5.2 says some Israelite men were being circumcised a second time, we can infer that something was unacceptable about their Egyptian circumcision. Um, Therefore, the ceremony in Joshua 5 would be a second circumcision for some men, but a first circumcision for those born in the wilderness. Circumcision was not only a sign for Israelite men, but also for the women. Now, why? Why was this a sign for the women? They needed to be certain they were marrying Israelites and not men who worshipped other gods. You see, once again, this is about survival of the inheritance of Israel. How would you know? Part of an individual who, who was from the nations 
who wanted to actually join themselves to Israel and be considered uh, a son of Abraham, guess what one of the, the rituals they went through to be considered a son of Abraham was? Circumcision. That's what made them. In fact, this was a big issue in the New Testament, right? Because many people uh, of the Pharisees who became believers thought that Gentiles, in order for them to really be believers, had to also get circumcised. Because after all, that's how you become one of the people of Israel. So, um, so this was a big deal, and it would be a big deal for the women to know this as well. So every married Israelite man was thus a bridegroom of blood. Do you catch that? Now we're getting understanding for one of the phrases. Every Israelite man is a bridegroom of blood. What makes him a, a proper bridegroom for her is his circumcision, which is bloody. So every Israelite man is a bridegroom of blood. So a man who had undergone the blood ritual of circumcision. All right. So now we're getting a little piece of the text here, what's going on. All right. So that explains the bridegroom of blood part. The man went under, underwent a uh, blood ritual. That's that. All right. So let's break it down some more. And I promise when we're all done, this actually preach. Because I know a lot of us uh, uh, are going, how does this apply to me? I mean, you know, like in the New Testament, it's not a thing anymore. This, we're getting there. We're getting there. Stick with me. All right. Now, here's where the story in Joshua helps us understand some of the more strange story in Exodus. Okay? So, when we take these two stories and we put them next to each other, they help us understand. We're looking at Scripture to help understand Scripture. So, in Joshua, the men who came out were getting circumcised a second time. Likely, only had an Egyptian circumcision, not an Abrahamic circumcision. Well, where did Moses come from? Egypt. Moses came out of Egypt. So either he was never circumcised or he only had an Egyptian circumcision. Now, the fact was, if he had been marked by a Hebrew circumcision, he would have been in danger growing up in Pharaoh's house. It would have been obvious. And he was raised as a daughter of Pharaoh, not as... because. All the young boys, that's a sure way to, for, a, for an infant to get thrown in the Nile and be killed. So why was God angry with Moses here? Why all of a sudden does God get angry with him? What's going on? And it's very simple. Moses never bothers to obey God's covenant ritual as a free man in Midian after he fled Egypt. You know, the writer of Hebrews says Moses decided at some point that he was going to identify with his own people. But clearly, how far did he actually take that? Interesting, huh? Exodus tells us that the, the Midianites knew that, God, that the God of Sinai, knew the God of Sinai and practiced circumcision. How in the world was Zipporah and know how to do it? The Midianites knew, how many, how many know uh, where the family of Midian comes from? Anybody know where the family of Midian comes from? Ooh, this is worth like 150 points if you know this. They're descendants of Abraham. They come from Abraham's wife after Sarah, the Torah. Yeah. So they're cousins to the Israelites. They would have known who Yahweh was. They would have known about the Abrahamic circumcision. 
everyone in the house of Abraham had to be circumcised. It would not have made them Israelites because all those that descended from Sarah, but everyone in Abraham's household, not only Isaac and those descended, everyone in Abraham's household was circumcised on the eighth day. So they would have been familiar with this practice. In fact, it's fascinating listening to Jethro have conversations about Yahweh when they come out and all that Yahweh is doing with Moses. Anyway, um, since God chose Moses as his representative to deliver Israel, Moses' laxity and covenant obedience becomes an issue. You're my representative. Catch this, guys. He's God's representative to speak to the people of Israel, and yet he's not taking care of some of the most basic things once he was free to do so. We can have understanding when his life is threatened in order for him to make it to this point. But once he's gotten to that point, especially after he's declaring identity with the people of Israel, what, what, what stopped him? So, doing the right thing, Zipporah's courage. Now, this is where this uh, is a, a, a little odd as well. So, what does touching the foreskin to the feet mean? What does that actually mean? Now, we're going to get a little technical, but we're going to figure it out. We're going to find out. All right? Um, so, uh, this that whole thing, touching the foreskin to the feet, that's not part of the circumcision ritual. All right? It's not necessary to, you know, to take and touch somebody's feet with it. It's not, it's just... It's just cutting it, cutting the foreskin off that circumcision. It's over. It's done with. All right. So now we're getting technical. This Hebrew word for feet is uh, regal. Regal. Everybody say regal. Good job. Now you all speak Hebrew. Hebrew experts. Um, and interestingly enough, that word is a Hebrew euphemism. It's a euphemism for genitalia or, or, or um, uh, uh, genital functions. It's a way of talking about those things without talking, without saying the name of those things. Um, it includes sexual exposure. Now, we're going to look at several texts. This happens all throughout the, the text. We're going to look at several texts so we can see this where it is. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a text here in the ESV. And I'm going to switch over and go to Young's uh, literal translation. It's not the best translation in the world, but it, it tries to interpret every word literally. And we can see, if, I, if we were to interpret the Hebrew word for word literally, it's kind of a King James interpretation, but it still help us what it would have said in the Hebrew versus what we're reading the, in, you know, kind of smoothed over into the English here for us. All right, so this is in Judges chapter 3. It's verse 24. And when he had gone, the servants came. This is um, um, uh, referring to one of the kings. So when he had gone, the servants came, uh, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. That's what it says in English. So um, this king had one of the judges. This was an evil king. And one of the judges went into him. And he locks the door. And he, he kills this evil king. And he flees. And his servants are outside. They're, they're afraid to go into the king because the door is locked. And they're thinking, maybe the king is on the, on the toilet. And so we're just going to leave him alone. Let him have his private time. Don't bother the king when it's not an appropriate time to bother him. All right? And so um, that's what it says. You know, he may, surely he is relieving himself in the closet. Well, guess what it says if we were to translate the Hebrew le- literally. And he hath gone out and his servants hath come in and look. And lo, the doors of the upper chamber are bolted. And they say, 
He, he is only covering his feet in the inner chamber of the wall. So relieving himself in the Hebrew, they, they use the idiom covering his feet. Why? Because you drop your drawers and cover your feet when you sit down. So it's idiomatic for relieving yourself. You didn't know this is the kind of Bible study we would get into, did you? <laughs> Look, this is the text. The Bible touches everything. All right. So let's look at this in Samuel. This is 1 Samuel 24. This is verse 3. He came to the sheepfolds by, by the way, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. So the text says Saul goes in to relieve himself. And David and his men were sitting far back in the cave, right? Well, what does it literally say in the Hebrew? He cometh in unto the folds of the flock, and on the way there is a cave, and Saul goeth in to cover his feet. You know, once again, it's using the same idiom, the same euphemism. But in the English, they make it clear so that we're not wondering what in the world he means by covering his feet. You know, he's telling us he just he went in to relieve himself. That's why Saul went in there. Okay, let's look over in Ezekiel here. This is in Ezekiel. At the head of every street, you built your... This is a different way of using that same phrase. Um, uh, at the head of every street, you built your lofty pa- place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. This is Ezekiel prophesying to, to, uh, to the um, nation of Israel uh, of their um, idolatry. And he parallels it to adultery. Um, he parallels it to, um, to prostitution. And uh, he says, any, you're, you're willing to give yourself to any passerby. Well, this is, um, this is in the Young's Living, uh, Young Living uh, literal translation. At the head of... At every head of the way thou hast built thy high place, and thou dost make thy beauty abominable, and dost open wide thy feet to every passerby, and dost multiply thy whoredoms. You see how they're using that? Um, that euphemism. Um, and lastly, we're going to use another one. This is, this is a, another one of those passages that sometimes people wonder, what in the world is going on here? This is in the book of Ruth. Now, how many remember when, you know, Ruth's going, and she's going into the field, and Boaz's field, and Boaz is letting her glean, and Naomi says, oh, okay, he's a redeemer kinsman, he's a righteous man, he's an ideal husband for you. So what I want you to do is I want you to go down to the, flesh, the, the threshing floor, okay? And what does the text say? Um, he says, when he gets ready to go to sleep, take careful notice of the place where he lies down, then go uncover his legs. Or some, you might see, uncover his feet. But uncover his leg, uncover his feet, and lie down beside him. He will tell you what to do. And in verse 7, that was in verse 4. Verse 7, when Boaz had finished his meal, he was feeling satisfied. He laid down to sleep far at the far end of the grain heap. And Ruth crept up quietly and uncovered his legs and laid down beside him. What is going on in this text? Why in the what would that mean to Boaz? What's happening here? All right, so... Um, this is from the Net Bible. This is translator's note from the Net Bible trying to explain this. So that, that Hebrew word there, um, mar, margalot, uh, that Hebrew word there for, for uh, um, uh, the legs, uncover his legs or uncover his feet, margalot, that, that, that reglet, that root of that is in there. So it's the place of the feet because the foot is sometimes used euphemistically for Gentiles. Some feel Ruth is actually... Uh, making Boaz naked here. Others, um, now, now what's really important, and this is important to understand, 
that the text is not saying a sexual encounter happened. All right? It's not saying that. Um, but there is no doubt that what she is doing is intimate, indicating something intimate, offering herself in marriage to him. It's, it's her way of offering himself, herself in marriage to him. And he understands it immediately, right? What happens next in the text? He wakes up, sees what's happening. He goes, you would choose me rather than one of the young, good-looking guys? You want me? Wow, you are righteous. You, I, all right, I'm going to do right by you. I will take on the, the responsibility of being your husband, being your kinsman redeemer, but I can't just do it. There's another guy who actually has the right to do it before me. If he won't do it, then I'll do it. But he knew right away what was going on. It was a sign of intimacy. There was something going on here. So um, there's other places in the scripture as well. But I really wanted us to get a flavor for how the text does this. And sometimes you'll read versions that will say, you know, uncovered the feet like in, in Ruth. And you're like, okay, that's kind of strange. What does, how would that say anything? Well, their culture was just different. Well, it was. It was. And part of it was they used different euphemisms. All right. So what does Heiser say here? Um, the phrase in Exodus 4.25 makes sense only if Sipporah circumcised her son Gershom and then symbolically transfers that circumcision to Moses by taking Gershom's foreskin and touching Moses' genitals with it. And what does that do? It literally symbolically circumcises Moses. That's what's happening here. And what Sipporah is doing, she is demonstrating that she is two things. She is both wise and courageous. Why? Because she is doing something that is reserved for ceremonial men to do. And yet she's in a situation in which it, this is an emergency. Her husband is about to be killed. The, the, um, um, the, the, um, the uh, um, oh, what's the word I want here? The, the, the will of God is about to be interrupted with because of her husband's negligence. And she steps up to say, even though this is not my place, it is my place because it is the right thing that needs to be done and it needs to be done immediately and there is no one else to do it. She knew what it was. She knew how to do it and she does it. And in so doing, um, she, she uh, saves, preserves her son. She, she saves her son. Moses neglected his duty, yet the family is on the road. What's going to be done? What she did was wise. It was necessary. She was also acting in faith. There was no example of a, of a woman doing this to, um, uh, for her to say, well, you know, Sarah did it or someone else did it. She's like, I need to do this. Um, yet, by her acting in faith, God relents. It's her act of faith that God sees. Righteousness, Paul says this, and the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of the gospel is what it is revealed from faith to faith. Zechariah says um, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith. What's the Abraham covenant all about? Abraham believed God and was considered to be righteous. It was counted unto him as righteousness. And what is she doing? She's acting in the footsteps of Abraham, stepping out in faith. That's fascinating. So she saves Moses, uh, and, and in so doing, she atones for his negligence. Um, she atones for his 
uh, uh, yeah, his negligence. Now, what is Moses? He's a proper blood, bridegroom of blood. Now he's a proper husband. He's a proper bridegroom of blood. All right. So that's the breakdown of what's going on. Is that, is that right? Make sense to the pastors now and understand what's happening? Is that what you, so those that, that weren't, it wasn't strange to them before, did y'all, was that something new or different there? All right, so how does this apply to us? Um, I like Heiser's title for this. Will this preach? It's like, why are we listening to this other than it explains our scriptures to us and it really explains a whole lot? Um, I mean, I, I, I'll stop for a minute. I want you to put yourself in Zipporah's shoes. Put yourself in her shoes for a minute. You know, you're, you, you know that your husband is called of God to go do, um, you know, I would say probably one of the greatest things on earth to that moment, deliver entire people out from the most powerful nation on the land out of slavery. No small, mean task. And now Yahweh shows up. He's about to kill your husband. And he don't play. What are you going to do? How are you going to act? And, and likely, she knew all along about Moses' negligence. I mean, she's married to the guy. Also knows that it was not, her son was never circumcised. She's aware of these things. And so when the husband doesn't step out, what does she do? She steps out and does what he should have done. Because it was necessary. Not to obfuscate his position, but to save his life. That's fascinating. Well, I would say that I would say that her faith justifies her in that sense, because she sees the righteousness of the situation. She sees, and yeah, it does. It does. Yeah, to intercede, to jump and to intercede. Which, by the way, Moses becomes one of the greatest what intercessors. Yeah. All right. So this passage is a good example of why difficult passages are important. I'll say it again. This passage is why these difficult, but why are these important? There's a bunch of lessons that we can learn from this odd story. And so what I'm going to do now, rather than just go through these lessons, I'm going to ask you, what did you learn from it? What did you learn from it? And then we'll get into and see how many of those kind of go from uh, from here. That, you know, that Heiser came up with. Lucy. Wow. Yeah, so just kind of re-saying back so people can hear um, what, what I'm hearing, what I'm understanding. See if I get this right. Um, so um, uh, there, there is a place for the wife not to obfuscate her husband, but to stand in the gap on his behalf. And there are, there are things that if he is being negligent in, especially things that are threatening, that she may have to step in to do that would otherwise be things that he would be. You know, she doesn't take the – she doesn't obfuscate by, by for the however long, you know, 40 years they were married, stepping in saying, why aren't you circumcised? You need to do this. You don't see that the whole path. But it's not until it becomes life-threatening that she steps in. And because she does, she saves. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. 
Exactly. Or just acted in fear. Yeah. That's good. What else? See? The what makes us? Oh, sins. Yeah. That's good. So. Just to, to say back for people listening in, you know, prior to, prior to walking with Christ, we're in bondage. We're in slavery. We're in rebellion. And Jesus sets us free. Sets us free from that bondage. He sets us free from that slavery. He sets us free from that rebellion. And uh, a demonstration of that freedom is when we, uh, when we live in a way, still in faith, uh, but yet in obedience. Is that what you're saying? That demonstrates. In other words, not neglecting um, his commands, but rather seeking how we can live and walk those out now that we're free in Christ. So, uh, you know, um, that's a great lesson. You know, it reminds me of, um, it reminds me of a phrase by Lord Acton who said this, is freedom is not the freedom to do what you want. It's the freedom to do what you ought. To truly be free means you're free to do what you're supposed to do. You're fulfilling your your meaning and purpose. And that's kind of what makes me think. Is that kind of in line with what you were saying? That's good. I like that. That's good. Yeah. What other lessons? Paul, this Paul. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Those listening. He said it's important to pick the right wife. Amen to that. <laughs> That's good, yeah. And, and that can be that can go both ways. It's important to pick the right spouse. Period. Yeah, that's good. I like that. What other lessons? Anybody's got another lesson? You guys are doing good. What else do we learn from this? See? No, please. I should be giving out points. Okay, so far, everybody, if you if you've got a lesson you learned, you know that's twenty five points a piece. There we go. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. So that's really interesting. Is, is, so we learn this lesson when we understand this. there's this Egyptian circumcision, which is a partial, and there's an Abrahamic cir- circumcision, which is a full and complete. And, and how often do we see uh, Christians in different flavors of Christianity embrace something that isn't fully according to, words, to the Word of God? It's kind of akin to an Egyptian circumcision instead of being based on the truth of the word of God and embracing that, which is really akin to the full circumcision. And here we see Moses in trouble because of this. Yeah, that's good. Is that, is that, yeah, very good. 
Excellent. Mm -hmm. Ah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a. There's a. You know. Um. So what you you were you were talking was that was in school. In high school, when you were in high school. Gotcha. Yeah. So, you know, for those uh, those listening in, the, the, what Dee's talking about is being in high school where individuals were, were discussing, um, were they friends or in? Oh, okay. People who have passed away since high school. Some of the group members of people who you were in high school with have passed away, and other people have wanted to pray for them, even though they're dead. Right, right, yeah. So, I mean, it, and and I and I get the sentiment. The sentiment is you, you, you feel the grief, you feel the loss, and you feel the need to do something. But the scripture says it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Our opportunity to pray for one another is now. This is the opportunity. Today is the day of salvation, and that's kind of what you're sharing there. But that, I understand the sentiment. I understand why someone wouldn't want to do that. But there is a point in which it is too late, um, and uh, and this is part of our ministry of reconciliation. Is to is that there, um, God is long suffering. He's not tolerant. He's long-suffering in that he desires none to perish. But he's not tolerant in that there will be a day of judgment. There is a wrath that is already being revealed. That's good. That's good. Does anybody come up with another one, Bill? Yeah, or atoning for the uh, for the negligence of Moses. <clears throat> I like that. Yeah. So a couple of things. Bill was the same. One is, is it, it's reasonable to think that Zipporah would not would have known what to do. Her, fa- her father was a Midianite priest. Um, it's very reasonable she would have understood it and known the practice um, uh, uh, very well. But you also get this symbolism here. You get the son Gerson, the firstborn, the son. The blood of the son atoning um, uh, for Moses' negligence, but what Bill was bringing up is that 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 blood of the son being what makes them, you know, making him a proper bridegroom, uh, sanctifying the marriage, sanctifying the marriage, the blood of the son sanctifying the marriage. That's cool. I like that little symbolism there. Yeah, good last man. We we're digging, we're digging, guys. Y'all are doing good. Anymore, because I'm going to go through, Heiser's got a few of them here. We're going to go through those. But I just want, before we went through his, I wanted to see what, what y'all would come up with. Anybody got another one? All right, let's, let's see what Heiser has to say. So um, one of the first things he talks about 
when we study this is we discover that God's anger is not capricious, capricious and unreasonable. You know, one of the first things that jumps out is that God's wrath is real. It's not capricious. It's not unreasonable. God just doesn't get angry arbitrarily. God's wrath is real. The problem is, um, I read this recently. Let me see if I can quote it right. Um, One of the scholars I was reading recently said this. He said, from, from a man's perspective, from man, from, from, from our perspective, we ask the question, well, how could God send anyone to hell? Um, but if you actually flip the, the question around and you looked at it from God's perspective, the question really is, how could anybody actually be saved? If we truly understood... I'm going to put it a different way. Um, I was actually writing some personal notes up along this line just from some stuff I was studying, and I just wanted to write some thoughts down. Um, If we were actually created as an imager of the living God who is perfect and pure love, that's actually who we were created to be, created to reflect the incredible beauty of, of God's love. Okay? Then our lives, the fact, our existence is a better way of putting it. Our mere being here um, is not morally neutral. There is a moral requirement in our very existence. It just existing, I am meant to exist exude the love of God. Now, when I act on behalf of myself, I'm literally violating my very existence. When I act, when I mean by on behalf of myself, I mean selfishly. I don't mean uh, self, uh, self-righteously. I mean, or uh, it's not even a good way of putting it. Acting in a way that preserves life. I'm talking about acting in a way that's selfish. You know, me, mine, um, and uh, and we don't grasp the depth of that rebellion. I, I feel today, guys, this is so important to me because I, I've, 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 I listen, I've seen so many of our young people walk away from Jesus. I've seen adults walk away from Christ. I've, 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 I've I put my ear to the ground. I'm listening to the stories of people who say, yeah, I used to be a Christian, but. And I hear all the excuses in the world. And and Sean McDowell makes the argument that one of the threads he has seen in all of the, in, in the many conversations he's had with some of the famous people who used to be famous teachers or musicians or um, um, uh, 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 people that had a Christian witness of some sort, is that when they came to Christ, they came to Christ because of an experience they had. Not because they really understood they needed a Savior. When we say I'm saved, saved from what? What do you need to be saved from? From the coming wrath. Now, when Paul begins the book of Romans, when he starts the book of Romans, his thesis, I, 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 arguably one of his theses, he starts off as verse 16. 
He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And then he says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as the scripture says, the righteous shall live by faith. Um, And then he says, uh, for the wrath of God is revealed to all who, I'm going to paraphrasing here, to all who understand his clear attributes that have been revealed from the beginning, but who suppress the truth. And what's he saying? What the gospel does, it does two things. It reveals God's righteousness is here. It's here for us. And it reveals the wrath of God is here. It's already here. And part and parcel of the gospel is understanding that apart from Jesus, we are rebels. And so God is acting in, it's not, it's not why is God angry, it's why didn't Moses do what he should have done? We look at it from man's perspective and not God's perspective. We, we missed how pure and holy and good God is. My goodness, I've, I've, I've actually talked to people who have said to me, look, you know, this is who I am. If God, you know, I'm a good person. If God can't accept me, well, then, you know, I don't accept him. I'm like, really? I haven't heard people say this. All right. So the second lesson. We can't neglect what God requires. There's not room to neglect what God requires. I think this was some of the, I think, D, you were sharing kind of a lesson, something like that. There's some of the lessons that are coming up. If God requires it, it's not a suggestion. We're meant to be his imagers. He's requiring it not to put us under slavery. And we, we can't accomplish it in our own strength anyway. He wants to do it through us. Everything is done by faith, right? If I come to him in faith, oh, you foolish Galatians, who is bewitched you? Has that which begun in faith completed by works of the law? No, it's completed by faith. For it is God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. But we can't ignore it. Well, we have to keep drawing closer to him and he works it through us. There's another lesson. Um, had Moses been obedient to the covenant ritual of circumcision after leaving Egypt, his life and his role as God's servant, would have never been in danger to begin with. Wow. If Moses had come out and said, you know, God, uh, you know, for 40 years I lived in this household, and I really do this, but I know about this, but I need to find a way. You know, Jethro, you're a priest here. You know, we've got to find a way to, to get this done. If he'd have found a way to work out obedience to God's word, how much grace would God have given him in assisting him in that and not put his family in danger? What are, what are we doing that we're ignoring in the word of God that might be putting others in danger because we're ignoring God's word? Look, I'm not saying to walk around in fear I'm, uh, in the sense of scared of God. I'm saying to walk around in, in, in understanding what holiness is because he's called us to it. Let me put it a different way. Let me, put it, let me, let me give you a different kind of danger. Who 
is not seeing God's glory and in danger of hellfire because we're not representing it. Because we're not living it. Because we're neglecting what God wants us to embrace. Another lesson. It takes courage to do what's right. It takes courage to do what's right sometimes, often. I like Henry Blackaby says, listen, the moment God speaks, it's literally a, a crisis of faith. The moment God speaks, it is literally a crisis of faith because now we've got to decide, am I going to step out or am I going to go, God, you got the wrong person. It takes courage, which means if it takes courage for you, that's because it takes courage for me. And it takes courage to the person to your left, right and the person to your left, the person behind you, the person in front of you. It's, we're all, it takes courage for all of us. None of us have the, the corner of not needing courage. You can't look at someone else and you go, see, we, we love this. I remember, um, was it Muller who said this? Um, it says, we, we, we follow leaders, teachers who we like. And we'll, we will drive across the country. We'll buy airplane tickets. We'll do everything to go somewhere where there's somebody who's teaching something that we really want to hear. And, man, we're really getting it. And because we just think that if I can just get near them, I can get a little anointing off of them. I can hear that. I can get that right phrase that will, like, change everything. When he says, but are you actually willing to do what they did to get that anointing to begin with, which is put your face before God? Because that's how you get it if you listen to what they're actually teaching you. Isn't that interesting? And what does it take? It takes courage. Sometimes it seems out of place to do the right thing. Another lesson here we've got. This is the last one. Failure in any of these regards will create obstacles to God's desire to use us for his glory. Look, God desires at all times to use us for his glory, period. But we can put obstacles in that way. We can put obstacles in the way when we neglect. You know, I don't think, um, and, and, and listen, this is, I, I want you to hear this because I know that, this is, that these lessons can be very convicting. These lessons can be very harsh. Um, but they're not actually, and they're not meant to be. They're meant to be freeing. Why? Because freedom comes when we learn to do what we ought, not what we they're very freeing okay um but uh one of the things that we miss is we 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 really get to thinking look and i, and I have great empathy for this uh, you know because i live in this world just like y'all and, and i know how hard this is um but life gets so busy there's so much that's in front of us that we just have to take care of day in and out, day in, day out, just living. And then there's all of the, you know, relationships around us that, that wear on us and things we got to do and all that. And so it's very easy to get our attention sucked away by the tyranny of everything that's urgent that we miss what's important. 
the important gets set aside for what's urgent. And what's urgent? Just living life, just paying bills, just trying to get day by day, just, you know, dealing with all these things. And what we miss (laughs) is that every single one of us was created uniquely by God to have such an impact, we don't even understand the depth of the impact. Why? Because we think impact is spectacular. Most of our impact is unspectacular, and we make the mistake of confusing insignificant with unspectacular. We think, what's it matter if I'm kind to that person? What does it matter if, I'm, if I do all of these things that demonstrate the fruit of the Holy Spirit in my life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If I act in these ways all the time, I am having impact and don't even know it. And don't even know it. It may seem very um, unspectacular but it is not insignificant. And so when we neglect these things, they literally become obstacles. The Holy Spirit has to work on us until we come to these moments when we want to return to him. Amen? So there's a lot of goodness in this, this weird, strange passage. Isn't that interesting? And we could take this weird, strange passage and really get down to the nitty-gritty of how we live life just from this little, tiny, strange passage understanding it that's how important getting this thing we call our the bible the word of god is well thank you all next week we're going to we're going to jump into um what walking on water really means i'm walking walking on the water we're gonna we're gonna look at that you can read ahead you can check it out you can see the punchline i promise you i'll always have uh a different way of putting it so um, I want you to read ahead. That way you can also keep me keep me straight. But um, let's do this. Uh, we're finishing up. Like I said, I'm purposely just doing one. We can spend a little more time to you know chat like we did. I'm not going to have the normal Q and A after I um, um, after I finish. If you have a question, come on down. Um, but what I really want, especially since we're a few minutes early, please take a minute and fellowship with one another. If you've got a prayer request, super important. In fact, I'll just ask right now, is there anyone here who has a prayer request? Lucy, anybody else? All right, so afterwards, will you please, will, will, will some of you gather with Lucy and pray? Um, pray together. Can, can we do that? Some of you get together with her and pray. Also, we need to be praying for Ira. She's got a private prayer request. So um, just if some, if some of those who are not praying for Lucy would just lift up Ira, that would be great. Um, and, um, and then if you could help me get the, you know, put the chairs back, but just take a couple of minutes before we, it's time to pick the kids up and just fellowship together. Let's enjoy family time. Father, we bless you. We thank you. I, I pray that, that this would be a moment, this prayer time, and not just the time just to do the Christian thing to close out, but this prayer time would be a moment we reflect on everything we just heard. And ask if there's anything you want to change in our lives, you want to touch in our lives. Father, I pray that, that, uh, that we would not hear your word and walk away without responding to it. But that we would hear your word and respond and ask you, how are we to respond to it? 
but work in us. Father, I thank you for each one who is here, who is an amazing imager of God, who you have crafted with the utmost care and concern, who you love to the depth of the fabric of who they are, and that we would get it. And that we would get you and allow your grace to work all these things in us. Father, may we, may we embrace that love and that grace to be who you want us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Don't forget to pray with Lucy. Pray for uh, Ira and then kind of chat and help with the chairs. Thank you, Sally. You can turn me off.